Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this and all the other episodes. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them I'd have quit long ago. Join us at patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy for behind-the-scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash thesoardguy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Now, just a quick note about the upcoming interview with Lee Shockey. She works for an aerospace company, which is, shall we say, more cautious than usual about what can and cannot be said by its employees in a public space. So, so as I do with all of my guests, I sent Lee the recording in advance after I'd edited it, And she came back to me with a bunch of edits that had to be made so that she wouldn't get into trouble at work. So there will be some moments in the show today where we seem to skip unnaturally from one point to another. And that's where I have chopped out bits that she wasn't allowed to say. So just please excuse any slight weirdness in the editing as we skip about a little bit. There were quite a lot of small cuts to make and one rather large one. I've done my best, but as you know, I am not an audio engineer. I am a sword person. So without further ado, on with the show. I'm here today with Lee Shockey, who is an instructional designer at Blue Origins. and I will be asking her what that actually is. A historical martial arts practitioner, a co-founder of Sword Squatch, one of my absolute top favorite historical martial arts events, and a long-standing board member of the club Lonin which you may have heard about in my interview with Neil Stevenson a little while ago. So, without further ado, Lee, welcome to the show. Hello. It's so good to see you again. It's been a long time, hasn't it? It's and we'll get into why as we go through the <laughs> questions, I think. All right. Yeah. Just to kick off, whereabouts in the world are you at the moment? I'm in Seattle, Washington. So, left coast of the United States. For Europeans, we're above California, just under Canada. Kind of in the armpit of the Americas. Little, little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite American cities. Um, uh, so, how did you get started with this whole historical martial arts thing? Oh gosh. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely like a romantic at heart, and uh, mm-hmm. swords are deeply romantic. And I think that um, if you're at all interested in like fantasy novels, sci-fi, you've been raised around sort of the lore of the sword as like a way to move the character through the story. And um, 
when I was um, in 2012, I read an article in io9, which was an awesome sci-fi fantasy blog that I don't think exists anymore or exists in a in a strange state. But it um, it talked about how Neil Stevenson was practicing swords in a warehouse somewhere in Seattle, and um, I read it. I thought that sounds amazing, um, and I did not give myself permission to look into it further. Uh, about two years later. I Can mentioned I ask it. Why not? <laughs> um, there are so many reasons. I think uh, a big thing is just general timidity and okay. uh, thinking, like, yeah, that sounds cool. The version of me that I think exists would never try that or put themselves out there like that. Um, and about two years later, I randomly brought it up to someone who thought that, uh, who, who I thought would also think it was cool. And they were like, well, we need to find it. And he went online and he said, well, here it is. It's Lonin. Let's go. And um, him being like a well over six feet tall, giant, scary guy uh, who works security. <laughs> we're, talk, we're talking about Dan, aren't we? Yes, we are. We love okay. Dan. Okay. We love Dan. <laughs> Dan, Dan is, he, he could certainly look scary if you wanted to, but he is actually a complete teddy bear. Through oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so he kind of dared me to go. And, um, and I said, you know what, I'm going to go. So we went, it was February of 2014. And uh, Eric Arst was teaching, uh, was basically running the Fiore classes mm -hmm. at that time. So it was kind of cool to hear Neil's uh, podcast with you where he talked about sort of the early history of Lonin. I arrived mm -hmm. obviously much later. And um, the vibe was so great. People were so welcoming. Um, Eric kind of like zeroed in on me from the start, I think, and um, recognized that this was something that was probably out of my comfort zone. And he challenged me and um, made me basically try, which is not something I'm really prone to do. I'm not a sporty person. I think about half the people that show up to any sword fighting class are more like, I like video games and fantasy and, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. not into sports. And I'm very much that I'm, person. I'm not into honestly, sports. Honestly, one, one of the biggest parts of my job is getting people who are not sporty at all, but swords are so cool, they just have to do them. Yes. Getting them fit enough and strong enough to do them without hurting themselves. Yes, yes. And we need to talk about that more. <laughs> okay. But... Um, it was really interesting because I've, I've never done a physical sport before. I've done dance and ballet, and I was very um, excited about how much it reminded me of ballet and how some of the instructional rigor that those particular coaches in Lonin applied. Um, Nathan Barnett, I always joke that he's my grumpy ballet teacher. Like, I just love <laughs> he You know, he teaches, he teaches um, backsword like a strict ballet teacher and it's awesome. He does. And, I've, um, I've, I've been to one of his backsword <laughs> classes and it was, it was very, very choreographical and precise. Yes. Yeah. And that, I dug that, like that was something that I could okay. get, get beat all about. And um, the, of course, the first thing that Eric decided was that I needed to start trying sparring once I got a little bit more into it. And I was very sure. resistant to that idea because okay. that's a sport that's sweaty and I don't like it and <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to try it. Um, and he really got me to a place where I had that muscle memory built for Fiore, like I'm throwing strikes right now, where I felt like I could do it. 
Um, but yeah. then, of course, the first time that I ever sparred was in front of my great literary heroes, which is Neil Stevenson was standing right there. And I was just like, oh, how is this happening to me? What is going on? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Once, the first time I met Neil, I had no idea who he was. And I got through the entire event at WW having no idea who he was. I only found out afterwards. And then when I when he and some other guys from Lenin came to WW the next time, and he was there in my class... I think I hit it, but I very nearly choked. I had this ghastly fanboy moment and it was awful. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think I got over it. And yeah. now it's just like, you know, when he's in my classes, he's any other student in my classes, but it does take a moment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, um, and it's wild to like receive, you know, encouragement from someone that you that you look up to, which is, you know, like at one point I was attending Baxard fairly regularly. I've dabbled in like all the classes that that Lonan offered at the time. And, you know, he was like, I really see some improvement like week to week. And it's like that type of coaching um, and validation. Just we notice that you're here. I think when you're a woman in this sport or any any person that's not the standard that you see when you walk into most sword clubs, although that's changed drastically since I've started and it's awesome. Um, I think you're just, it's sort of you're making a choice to put yourself in a space that I'm already in every day. I'm in the corporate world. I'm in STEM. I'm surrounded by white men all day long. I'm making yet another choice when I attend class to put myself in that environment. And I don't always feel safe in that environment. Um, the work that Lonan has done to ensure that I felt safe in that space, like it was, um, it was immediate and it was incredible. And it was there before I got there. Like it was baked in. And, and, and Lonan is actually the only place the only club that has ever got me to teach a women-only class. I was the only bloke in the room. Yep. Right? We brought you and, up for that. That was great. Yeah, it was. And, and it was a really interesting experience for me as well because it was, it was quite different. And some of the things we had to go over were very specific um, to you know, teaching a group of women with, and no men in the room There's other than me. There's, you know, concerns could be aired that maybe wouldn't have been aired if there were yes. other blokes around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I think Eric Arst in particular um, did some work to just make me feel seen. He pointed out uh, gear that would fit me, which was mm-hmm. is always a challenge. I think, I think every woman, no matter what size you are, gear is just not made for us necessarily and um our body our bodies are so different from person to person that like something that works for me isn't going to work for the person next to me and he really works with me to help me figure that out um he also like told me don't buy gear first buy a sword yeah that's very true that was so smart um i bought my sword and i was like oh now i'm in (laughs) Like yeah. I brought it, I brought it to practice and everyone gathered around. And what I didn't know was that I'd bought one of the last, um, Gus trims that he made that were a slightly lighter weight class for a training oh, right. sword. And I found it on eBay. And, um, like when people gathered, people like c- came into practice and then like gathered around me, like I'd brought in like a hot vintage car <laughs> and like, we're just like sitting there, like talking about Honestly, it and swinging it. <laughs> if you brought in a hot vintage car, most of them wouldn't care. But I know, sword? right? Yeah. But yeah. When, exactly. when my students had a new sword in class, I always used to, the first drill of the class where the swords would come together, I would get 
them to come out with their new sword and I would put the first scratch on it. So they would swing at me and I would parry it and they would all look at where the scratch was. That's the first scratch <laughs> on the new training sword. Oh, it's awesome. a thing. It is, it a, is thing. a thing. Yeah. And oh, I'm obsessed with my, I, my sword's hanging on the wall in, in another room, but I'm obsessed with it. And um, yeah, like the, uh, the other thing that Lonan brought for me was sort of the humor and the goofiness. Uh, Neil addressed this a little bit, but sort of the attitude of like, Let's just try it. So like we've made mm. multiple jokes about how we need to dig a hole in the floor and put someone in it so that we can do the whole thing where it's like the woman has the rock in the sock and she swings yeah. it at the guy that's standing over the pit. We, we've always joked about how we need to do that. That's from one of yeah, the German the man's species. in the pit with a club. Man's in the pit, yes. Yeah, the man's in the pit with a club and she's got a rock in a, in a veil, I think it yeah. is. It's a dispute between a husband and wife, a judicial duel between a husband and wife. Yes. And if, if he manages to drag the woman into the pit, she loses. Exactly. And if she manages to get him out of the pit, he loses. Yep. And if one of them kills the other, then obviously, you know. It's a draw. It's, well, I know. <laughs> if, if one of them kills the other, then the one who killed the other right. obviously has been, has been demonstrated to be in the right. Right. Yeah. So we, um, yeah, we're, sort of that humor and um, that there's nothing too nerdy. There's nothing we won't I at least joke about trying or at least try. Hoover ball is another good example of something that. What is Hoover ball? Oh God. Um, it is a, um, so President Hoover uh, around the, I want to say it's the 1920s or 30s. I should have brought my info sheet on it, but it's, um, he invented a form of it's almost like volleyball, but with a medicine ball is the closest way I would explain oh, it. Okay. Um, the uh, we have a contingent of Lonin called Bwahaha, uh, which yeah. Neil talked about a little bit on his podcast. He's more involved in that group than than I ever was, but they um, they will occasionally do Hoover ball, which is you know lofting a medicine ball and catching a medicine ball over a net. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, potential Why for not? shoulder. Injury is very high. <laughs> or face injury, if you're not very good at catching. <laughs> that too. Um, so it's not for I speak everyone. speak from experience. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just sort of part of the like, let's try anything. You know, Hoover was super into physical fitness and invented that sport, apparently, or that's what they called it. And uh, it was sort of a, hey, this existed. Who wants to let's hang try. out and try it? And mm. um, I love that. I love the the nerdiness, the, his the history, and... Um, that sort of lowers the mental barrier of entry for me right. um, of just being able to say, we're not taking ourselves too seriously. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, you, you can take the art very seriously without taking yourself seriously right. at all. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and again, like it makes it again, just easier for me to make a conscious decision to be in a space where I'm the minority. Um, we've again, changed so much just even in the past gosh, eight years, um, changed so much. But um, it's still something that you have to make a decision before you show up for the first time because you don't necessarily know, which is why we make sure that there's like, you right. know, pictures and of women in things. And your books have pictures of women in them. And that was another thing do. that I saw. Um, so when Eric starts showing me, uh, I, th I believe it was your dagger. It was, uh, medieval dagger. Yeah. Medieval dagger. I think there's uh, there's a woman in those and I there was is. all about it. So there, there, there is a... There are pictures of women in all of my books that have pictures of people doing sword stuff or yes. martial arts stuff because yeah. women should be able to do this and they should do it. And if they want to do it, they should be able to do it. 
And he and didn't even say like, look, there's women in this book. Like it wasn't like that. It was, no, no. it was, Hey, take this book home and read through it. And I did. And I was like, I'm in, Oh my God. Like I'm here. You know, that just made me <laughs> exactly. feel more welcome. That's good. I am very glad to hear that. Cause that's, that's exactly why I have gone out of my way to make sure that that was the case. That they were, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, Cause it's when you're organizing a photo shoot for this kind of specialist topic, you have to have people there who have actually trained and that limits the pool. And I, I never managed to get my school's female um, membership past about 40% of the total. So there was always more blokes than women available. But I would make sure there are at least a couple of women who could make any given date before we would pick that date for the photo shoot. It's, I just think it's critically important. Again, so that's why you know, the show has a 51% female guest list. That's Yeah, and I noticed right. that too, reason. and that's the thing. Yeah, you can't, so that, you, know, you can't be what you can't see. If you're not, if you don't see yourself in these environments, you're going to assume you're not welcome from the jump. And right. when you see yourself- Even when you are. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So when you see yourself in those environments, that's just a huge first step, I think. So Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so you say it's changed a lot. I mean, are we talking about within learning or in the historical martial arts world as a whole? Both. And um, part of this could be confirmation bias. You know, you look for women, so you find them. Um, but even so, um, it started with the S-Finges, um, with Fran and Mariana. Um, so the S-Finges is a Facebook group, but also sort of a loosely organized group of women in HEMA, um, where we just go to talk. And... Um, those conversations, it used to be, I, I believe when I started, it was around 500 members, that Facebook group. And now it's got well over at least, I don't even know. Um, we should check, fact check that for after the, after it, <laughs> okay. but it's, it's high I, enough. <laughs> I, will, I will look it up and I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> yes. Um, their membership has just, just exploded. And um, uh, Sam Swords had a lot to do with that, just that visibility in the media uh, happened right around that same time. Then there was just um, an enormous amount of um, Game of Thrones, Brienne, you know, happened all around that same time. People, um, we we saw, definitely saw a spike of attendance in Lonan anytime a new season of Game of Thrones was airing. (laughs) Um, Because we used to monitor attendance, but also the club itself just started growing. And um, this was all pre-pandemic. And um, one thing that I noticed was that not only were more women showing up, but they were showing up together. So women would show up in groups. Ah, Um, We had had more gender diversity in general. Non-binary and trans folks started showing up as well. Um, and we would hold, uh, we held a few of those all women, um, just come and come out, come try it. And, you know, we'd regularly get like 30, 40 people, um, that would show up just to, just to learn for one day. And, um, now, um, like I'm not on the board of Lonan anymore, but I still see a lot of the Facebook messages that come in. And I would say a solid 40%, like people message us to find out when our club, when our classes are happening and stuff around mm-hmm. that. It's consistently 40% women, just all the time. Um, there's way more than there used to be. And uh, and it's pretty great. So n- it hasn't been where I've shown up and been the only woman in class since like, 
20 since pretty much I started. Like it happened pretty yeah. fast. So I, I don't mean, know I remember, credit for that, but it was great. I mean, I would so very occasionally when I was teaching in Helsinki, I would have a class that was more women than men. And once we had an all-female class just by accident. But that's just a kind of freak of people's schedules and what have you. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. we have vastly more all-male classes than we ever had all-female. Yeah. Um, but it makes me think, actually, Do you, it, it sounds to me like it's a good idea if you want more women in your club, organize women-only events. Um, my thinking on that's changed a lot, actually. Um, Tell me. Well, part of it is... And again, this has changed so much since 2014. We are more open as a society for talking about uh, gender diversity and um, all of that in general. And mm-hmm. um, we have more non-binary folks that are out in the open, more trans folks that are out in the open, sure. that that are um, that are living their lives openly. And we want those people to come to Lonin. So saying it's a women-only sure. event, um, we don't want to limit ourselves at all. Okay, how um, would you we- rephrase it? Uh, we started calling it like just uh, like she's gays and days. So, you know, however you identify, please show up. But we also noticed that we weren't getting a ton of follow on attendance from those events. So we would have 40 right. women show up to those classes. Of that, we could maybe snag one or two to show up to class regularly afterwards. Really? It was surprising. Okay. So, and we did a you whole bunch. You think the conversion of, would be better? I know. And we did a whole bunch of different. Wait, formats of doing it. You know, we had a more combat focused one. We had one that was a little bit more scholarly focused. It didn't seem to change. Um, I would love to run more experiments on that, but um, it's again, less of an issue than it used to be. And, um, and in general, we found that just weaving that diversity through the entire organization was more effective. So there's a lot of women on the board. There's, um, there's visible women on the website. There's, um, you know, I wrote a uh, one of the things I'm proudest of is my from my time as a board member is drafting our code of conduct, which, of course, then, okay. you know, we all contributed to. Um, we included a lot more. It's on our website. Um, we included a lot more stuff, not just about safety, but about psychological safety. And yeah. the biggest thing that we wanted to address that we were kind of struggling with is and I think every club struggles with is is over explaining. So, it- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, to call it by its proper name, mansplaining. Yeah, just a little. So uh, <laughs> we we would we would struggle with that, and and it was pretty funny because I went to a spear workshop, um, not at Lone at a different location, and um, one of my one of the people I went with Dan, and Dan was standing next to me, and he observed my training partner in that class stopping me about every five minutes to give me feedback, even though I'd at that point had many years, had like four years of experience. And this person that was giving me a lot of information uh, did not. So, (laughs) and, and he said to me afterwards, he said, well, that's, that's unnecessary. I've never seen anything like that before. I was like, Oh honey, it happens all the time. Um, And, and I didn't even notice it. I hadn't really, really clocked it. And. um, Well, yeah, because you're used to it. Yeah, exactly. And you shouldn't so, have to be, but you are. Right, right. And so then you start thinking, well, how is that impacting the training experiences of other women and especially other women that are more sensitive to that? Um, other people, really. So we put in, again, very gender neutral language in the code of conduct. Don't over explain. It's pretty well stepped out in the code of conduct is like, this is what we consider to be over explaining. This is what we're asking you to do when we pause a drill. We stop. Don't give them this type of feedback. Um 
we really thought about that section as a club when we were putting mm. it together. Um, the the other thing, of course, was to have a code of conduct that included inclusivity statements and included that, you know, safety is ult- is paramount importance. People just aren't going to come back if they don't feel safe. So talking about how to modulate how you hit each other before you engage in a drill, all that mm-hmm. good stuff, because everybody's got a different threshold of what makes them feel safe. It's something that I don't think we'll ever perfect. Everybody shows up to class with a different idea of what that means. People show up to class with no experience in martial art, no experience of how to ask for what they need, which is why mm-hmm. we put that in the code of conduct to sort of get people in that frame of mind of like, don't be afraid to ask for what you need. Well, okay, we're definitely going to have to link to that code of conduct in the show notes. Okay, <laughs> so, yeah. So, so this is going to go, okay, now what are the specifics of that? Because obviously I don't expect you have, like, the whole thing verbatim in your head. Um, it's, ha- okay, having a code of conduct is, don't worry, we, we'll, we'll find it and put it in the, you don't need to worry about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, having a code of conduct is a great first step. But if it's not enforced, it doesn't help. Exactly. So how is it enforced? Oh, God. Well, we're first of all, we're a nonprofit comprised of volunteers. We don't pay anyone to be there. And yeah. w- one of the biggest things we don't want to do is put an unfair emotional load on the people that are in charge of enforcing the code of conduct, because those people are frequently women. So we're putting <laughs> a okay, burden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I experienced this. And and um you know, I, I experienced a burden of being messaged quite a bit by coaches saying, hey, this happened. How do I approach it? Um, okay. I am always willing to help. I uh, work on DEI initiatives at throughout my life at, at so various what is companies. DEI? I'm sorry, diversity, equity and inclusion. So okay. um, most large companies have like a diversity, equity and inclusion group, the effectiveness of those I could go into for a thousand years. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, again, getting better all the time, kind of. Um, but one of the problems that you run into, and I ran into this a lot when I ran training programs for an airline about um, sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. So training programs for how to prevent both of those issues and de-escalate situations. Obviously, I have a background in it. I've studied it. I've worked with people who have worked on it. Um, the The bad side effect of that is if you're an empathetic person, um, I sort of take in all that energy. So when people are dealing with, um, are dealing with stuff in the club and they want me to help or weigh in, I am so happy to do that. And I love doing it. And I don't want anybody listening to this to think that I don't want to do it going forward because I do. Um, But it is difficult. It's almost like if, um, and I'll answer this question later when you talked about like, what would you do with your million dollars? It's like, how do you give people the tools that they need to be an ally. One of the biggest ways that people can be an ally, and I'm going to ramble a little bit, is is amplification. And this is actually something that Michelle Obama's uh, cabinet of, well, actually, women in the White House that were hired into the Obama administration struggled a little bit with getting their ideas and their opinions heard. There's an awesome article, I believe, in the Washington Post about this. So they came up with this policy of amplification. They would amplify each other's ideas in every meeting that they were in. So if I'm over here and I'm pitching this idea the woman sitting next to me says, I think that's a great point, Lee, and I support it in these ways, just to continue to get your messaging mm. across. Um, 
I've seen a considerable amount of amplification at Lonin. Um, the biggest one, of course, was when Eric asked me to join the board. He was specifically seeking out people that had a different perspective from him and amplifying their voices, including them in those things. The next right. thing that came followed on right after that was Sword Squatch. It was, hey, we want to redo the Pacific Northwest HEMA gathering. We don't know how to do it. We think you would be a good person to help. So instead of me having to come up with that energy to volunteer, to say, hey, mm -hmm. I'd like to be involved, somebody came up to me, somebody in a position of privilege or power, came up to me and said, hey, what do you think about helping us do this? Because people that, like, I don't I don't walk into Lonin thinking, I know everything about Sorge and I should be organizing everything. Absolutely everything I do at Lonin is because somebody asked me for help. And right. um, that is a form of amplification, validation that continues to message to me that I am welcome in this space. And mm. not just welcome, but like a valued member of the space that somebody yep. that can contribute, that can continue to be heard. Um, and again, I, I that is allyship, that is amplification, that is bringing someone forward and forward and forward. Um, and I've seen them do it around me with a bunch of other people too. Um, you know, Beth Hammer and I both started at Lonin around the same time. Um, we were actually in different practices, so we and didn't meet the, each other. For listeners, Beth has been on the show, so yeah, we'll, we'll put a yeah, link to her episode in the show notes. Yeah. And we were attending different practices and we didn't know it, so we didn't meet each other until later, but that was the same thing. They approached her separately, said, you know, how do you how do you want to think about doing this HEMA gathering going forward? And that's mm. where Sword Squatch was born out of. So um, like over half of the um, organizing board of Sword Squatch is uh, female or non-binary. So, right. yeah. <laughs> which no wonder it's such an inclusive. It, it is to this day, it is the only event at which I have worn nail polish. And it is the only event for which I have bought special underwear. Ah, what? <laughs> No. Yes. What? Yes, I did. Um, there's, a, there's a company in the States called Me Undies, and they yes. had, um, they're my preferred brand of underwear, and I okay. am not paid to say so. Oh. And so when I go to America, I order my underwear, and it gets shipped usually to Neil's house, because I'm usually staying at Neil's. And, and that, that particular sort of range, when, when I was going to my first sword squatch, or my second, I forget, my other, um, they had these purple with unicorns and rainbows and sparkles. And I thought, <laughs> that is Sword Squatch underwear. So I got that. And, and I, wore, I wore them on my first day at Sword Squatch. And I showed Beth my special Sword Squatch underwear. And I have, again, I have never shown anyone my underwear at an event before. Yes. Well, <laughs> and that was so intentional. Like the, cho the choice of purple and pink and blue for all of the Sword Squatch stuff. That was so intentional. We were like, no more Hema Black. We That's want, um, yeah, exactly. No more Hema Black, which is fine for some clubs. Some clubs do a really cool, like, goth, like, skulls and scariness aesthetic with, with the Hema stuff. And I appreciate it deeply. But for, for this, we wanted, um, again, the color choices were deliberate. You are welcome here. Purple, pink, sparkles, unicorns. Like, we are queer. We are we are ourselves when we're in this space. Um, the nail polish was a gift from from Valkyrie. They brought the Valkyrie Club yeah, in yeah, yeah. Vancouver. What yeah. happened was 
Kaya was sitting there. Okay, yep. Kaya's been on the show and we'll put a link to her, uh, his episode in the show notes. Um, and he was like, um, he, painting people's nails. I was like, hmm, maybe you should do mine. And he was like, okay. And I, it was some sort of rainbow things. I think it's like, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mean anything specific. Yeah. Right. But it's, and it didn't cost anything. Mm-hmm. But it just made it clear that you don't have to be a middle-aged straight white dude to be welcome <laughs> in my classes. Yeah, yeah. You know it I mean? was, it's just a, it's that kind of non-verbal signaling that just makes people more comfortable. Some exactly. people, some people make some people very uncomfortable. <laughs> I have yeah. one dear friend who's who's you know my sort of age, Australian, rather um, I don't know, a bit old school or whatever. And every time I see him, it's usually been years in between, I give him a big hug, kiss him on the cheek and say, hello, darling, just because it makes him blush and get very uncomfortable. <laughs> well, and, you know, I think that's the cool part about Sword Squatch is, you know, we've had instructors and other people show up and we're like, here's your T-shirt. And it's got a sa- Sasquatch riding a unicorn on a rocket ship yeah. in space with glitter. And throwing daggers. I've got that And one. throwing daggers, right. Yeah. And they And they go... Yeah, one of the most fun parts of being a Sword Squatch board member is T-shirt every year is being like, oh, can we have a bunny on the T-shirt design? You know, like just whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever dumb thing we want. Um, and the sometimes they look at like we had a few people like look at the shirt and go, I'm good. You know, I'm good. And it's like, you know what? That's awesome. Like we don't we, yeah, don't, that's fine. we don't mind. Yeah. Like the importance is that you can be yourself in the space. Um now we do have a, another code of conduct for Sword Squatch that um, that I helped write and that we like we're tweak we tweak and add to like every year. A lot of it had to do about the Bigfoot brawl because that is an open space where people can do open sparring. Um, yeah. And as such, obviously there's there's people managing the Bigfoot brawl and watching it the whole time for safety. But um, but it's a little bit more loosey goosey, and for that we need some just rules of the road. And, um, and that was the same thing, you know, bring yourself, but bring it safely. And, you know, nothing is too weird. Nothing is too random. I think my favorite ever Bigfoot brawl that we started doing in year one was the thumb war, where you have to do (laughs) a a thumb war where you take the other person down to the ground. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, no, that's... That's proper thumb war. Yeah, it starts as a thumb war, and then you end up on the ground uh, doing some sort of bastardized jujitsu ju- and um, and seeing who can pin the person's thumb to the ground. <laughs> okay. Um, and and then another one that I just loved was people brought their brought high heeled shoes because they wanted defense. That was Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gave a. Uh, um, Is he... I'm not sure of their pronouns, um, um, but he gave gave a presentation on Fabris. Yeah, it was and... Izzy, Kayatin, and Dan. <laughs> Different Dan. Yeah. East Coast Dan. Um, and they brought, yeah, they brought Fabris and they brought their heels and they sparred around. Because Fab- the Fabris guard position is easier yes. than a heel. Yes. Yeah. Right? It was so, the weirdest thing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and that was so much fun to watch. And and that's, again, nothing that we planned on happening. That was just mm-hmm. us saying, bring your weird shit. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, can I swear? You can swear as much as the fuck you like on my show. <laughs> okay. Good, because it's, yeah, that, I do. <laughs> okay, right. so you're, 
Um, I gather you're you're not training a lot at the moment. Is that right? I haven't trained in three years. <laughs> okay. Tell us why. I've helped with Sword Squatch a little bit during when we went off. So we went to Cyber Squatch. So had some online stuff during the pandemic. Um, The reason why is in 2018, just about exactly four years ago, I was in a pretty bad car accident that I don't remember. Um, That's not good. Yeah, not great. Um, And uh, my car was totaled, but I got up and walked away. Um, F-150 came out of nowhere and uh, totally destroyed my car. Um, uh, for the Europeans, an F-150 is the giant truck that you all make fun of Americans for having. And you should, because yes. they are death traps anyway, um, or vehicles of death. Anyway, um, so uh, because I walked away and I went straight and I did go to the doctor and they said, well, you might have a concussion, take it easy. Here's a pamphlet on concussion and how to take care of it. I had started my job at Blue Origin the week prior. (laughs) And um, I, uh, my job at Blue Origin is the coolest thing I've ever done in my whole life. And even uh, cooler than sorts. Yeah. <laughs> really? Okay, okay, okay. Okay. We will come we can, back to the car. Yeah, wreck we in should a minute. get into that. Let's yeah. let's let's tell us about how you got into rocketry and Blue Origins and how all that happened. Yeah. Actually when Neil was talking about it, he, he he was like the final straw on Jeff Bezos' back that made him actually start the company. So Yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? And I don't even yeah. think a lot of people know that. Um Well they do now if they listen yeah, to the Yeah, they show. do now, hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. Um I'm so glad because yeah, like there are employees at Blue that might not even know that. But um so what you heard from Neil was twenty years ago, this is what started Blue Origin. Where I'm at is I started just about exactly four years ago. Um as a instructional designer. So what I do for Blue is I teach people how to build all the things. Um, Okay. How do you know how to build all the things? I don't. I don't know how to build all the things. Um, I flunked math in high school and college. Um, So so hang on a second. You're working working for an aerospace company, but you flunked math. I think this would be very, very encouraging to many people out there. So (laughs) I hope my boss never hears this podcast. Not good at math. Not Not good at math at all. No, I have have dyscalculia, which is basically um, uh, dyslexia, but for numbers. I transpose things all the time. I can't tell time. Um, My husband has to do all the bill pay stuff or I'll pay bills wrong. Like it's bad. Um, (laughs) So... um, no, I um, my, what I do instructional design is basically I understand how adults learn and how they process information. And I started with um, Alaska Airlines right out of college, basically writing training for all of the customer service people that you see. So okay. everybody, we call it above the wing. Uh, then I moved to below the wing, which is maintenance and um, fueling and baggage and all that stuff. Uh, eventually pilots, eventually flight attendants as well. Um, mm-hmm. And what I do is I basically meet with people that are experts in the topic. I get a download from them of everything they think somebody needs to know to be able to do a certain task, like building a rocket. In this case, building a part of a rocket or a part of an engine. Um, And then I, from there, get all of this information, organize it in a way that I think will be easiest for an adult to take in that information. I also have to take in, um, take into account my learning audience. Who is my audience? Is it flight attendants? Mm-hmm. Is it rocket scientists? Is it 
uh, maintenance engineers and uh, write it out. I then also have to figure out how to save the company the most time and money. We don't want people in training for eight hours a day when we're paying them to build a rocket, yeah. right? Um, or manage an airplane. So um, that's kind of basically what I do. So what's really cool is I get to learn slowly over a long period of time everything anybody ever wanted to know about how to build a rocket. And uh, that is very cool. I just, my mind is blown like every day. Um, so, so you're, you, you've been into rockets for a while then. Yeah. Alien is like the format. I think I saw that movie like way too young. Um, yeah. I, I was, I was seven and watching Sigourney Weaver, you know, that is very young to watch Alien. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Honestly, um, I feel better about my parenting choices now because <laughs> I let my children watch pretty much anything. And my youngest child particularly is really into like, horror and <laughs> stuff and you know and and i'm like is this really good for a little brain or a young yeah. brain and then actually you know when i think about the stuff i was watching at the same age i turned out i think okay right. and clearly you turned out okay <laughs> so all right so aliens didn't alien didn't yeah. scar you too badly oh no well it did but in in such a way in of a like way. I want to go to space. I want to pilot a spacecraft. I want to be an astronaut. And um, really, yeah, very early okay. on, I realized that I was terrible at math. And I sort of put that, like I used to tell my mom, I want to be a ballerina astronaut. Well, like pretty early on, you start putting those dreams to bed as things get too difficult, right? Like math, like, oh, math is so hard. I can't figure it out. This must not be for me. I'm going to put it to one side. Mm -hmm. um, so I think every child does that. Like as they grow up, you start forming these self-limiting beliefs about what you can and can't do. So, um, by the way, does an astronaut need to be good at math? Uh, we should talk about that. I know they that. did in the old days. <laughs> in the old days, they yeah. certainly did. Yeah. But I don't, do they need to be good at math now? Well, I think that's what's so awesome about commercial space. You know, what all of the different uh, not NASA programs are doing is democratizing access to space. No, not to go to space, but is being a passenger on a rocket, does that make you an astronaut? I think that's a really good question. And I would say, yes, 100%. It's wow. a... Um, so going up and managing the running of the ISS <laughs> right. is a completely different discipline from getting there safely. Yeah. And um, the uh, FAA or was it the government actually created like their own sort of class of astronauts for sort of what we're doing at blue. And they do get their astronaut wings. There's like a ceremony every year where they oh, really? get their wings. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, because you're still absorbing a certain amount of risk. Uh, yeah. You do have to be able to make it through astronaut training. I'm I'm training to fly planes. No like, way. Yeah, no yeah. Way. It's been it's been my main obsession for the last nearly a year, right? What what um, plane? Uh, just single engine propeller, so Cessna one five two sort of thing. No way. Yes, yes, and I'm I'm aiming to get my private pilot's license and you know fly planes and just for fun because it's just awesome, right? Wow. Yeah. And You'd have a lot in common with my coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um, but I also fly on commercial airlines a lot, mm. right? And there is absolutely nothing in common with those two things. <laughs> um, right? Flying the plane and, I mean, maybe being a passenger on an airplane in the right. 1920s 
was close to being a pilot in, mm. in certain ways. But flying a plane and just sitting in the back and being driven somewhere is, or flown somewhere, is, you know, sitting in an airplane these days is like sitting in a bus. Right. Except in the 1920s, not very many people had ever done that before. Yeah. It wasn't like it was, that. You were assuming- It was a lot more dangerous. Some astronauts are like basically superhuman. Like, I don't know if you've seen like the European Space Agency's Instagram, but they do a lot, uh, a lot more, I think, than NASA of talking about the amount of training that's involved with being an astronaut that goes to the ISS and spends time there. Your body basically starts breaking down the moment you get on the ISS and you have to spend your entire, every ounce of your free time keeping it going. Also, every NASA astronaut. Sorry, this is, this is to do with the lack of gravity, right? Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so what New Shepard does is you get to experience a f- minutes of weightlessness, minutes of, of floating rather mm-hmm. than days, days months, weeks. Um, now, one of the interesting things is all of the NASA astronauts I've had the privilege to meet have told me the same thing, that they didn't need reading glasses when they went to space and they, did need the, they do need them now. Wow. Yeah. So So the lack of gravity screws your eyeballs. Oh, yes, very much so. It's a pressure issue, right? So you're constantly in, like, the pressure that we experience on Earth is, like, very necessary for keeping all of our ligaments where they need to be. Your ligaments connect your eyeballs to, you know, important stuff in your brain. and. Your skull. So yeah, that's that's another reason why space isn't exactly democratic. If you have, um, if you are like me and you've had retinal issues or like like I've like I'm at like a high risk for retinal detachment, not a good candidate for an astronaut. No. So again, like there are people that have issues that are essentially right now cut off from space. In the future, we're going to see a lot less of that. Um, okay. But it's so extremely much expensive, right? So it, there is oh, yeah. already a cutoff. So it's not truly democratic because it's, it's only very rich people can go. Early air travel was extremely expensive for the people that- It was, them. absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think we all remember like our grandparents dressing up to fly, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it was a special occasion. Honestly, now, when, we lived, when we lived in Peru in the 80s and early 90s, all the Peruvians would dress up to fly as well. Yeah, yeah. Like all yeah. the premiums on the plane would be in, in, you know, the sort of clothing you'd expect to see them at at a posh cocktail party. Exactly. That's the other thing. Right now you're firing a Did, rocket yeah, up. Didn't, didn't SpaceX <laughs> land a rocket a couple of years ago? Yes, and so do we all the time. <laughs> you, 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 you've, you've cracked that as well, have you? Oh, very much so. So New Shepard, okay. um, the New Shepard booster and crew capsule, there's two parts, um, yeah. they are fully reusable. So they come back every time we refurbish them and send them back up every time. So, yeah. That that, that brings the cost down enormously. Exactly. But it doesn't exist without enormous amounts of investment and R&D to get that technology to the space where it is safe enough to fly people. Um, I believe Neil talked about this in his podcast as well as like there, there is so much technology that has already been sort of thought through by everyone. And now it's the point of, okay, how do we make that cost effective? How do we make it iterative and keep going yeah. and going and going? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you may have noticed I'm, I'm fairly ignorant about space matters. Um, and, you know, my aviation interest at the moment ended about 10,000 feet. Mm-hmm. That's about as high as you'll get. A- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But, I- but, but who knows? Maybe one day. 
I'll and fly I one of those rockets. <laughs> I, I do think it's shocking to me that, like, for example, the the DART mission just happened where we we booped an asteroid. Like, we sent a module up into space yeah. to hit an asteroid and knock it off target so that it doesn't hit Earth. Yeah. Right? And to me, that should take up all the news for, like, three weeks. <laughs> we pulled an Armageddon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, like we just made it reality. And um, a lot of people just don't know because the the explanations about how everything works is way more complex than I think a lot of um, the media really wants to get into. So like, mm -hmm. for example, we booped the asteroid. We're not going to get the math back for two months. So we're not sure. going to know how successful it was or wasn't for two months. The timelines are really mm -hmm. long. Um, you know, we know that SpaceX launched this rocket, shot this rocket. We know that Starlink is going live right now for millions of people and the internet's going to be available all over the planet, no matter where you are. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't know that we've just become less impressed because we have phones now and supercomputers are in our hands every day, or um, if it's just hard for our human brains to scale to it. Um, I think that's the large part of it. Mm. It's like people, like a lot of the really, really important stuff doesn't register because we, we just don't operate at that scale. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I hear that a lot. It's hard to explain a mission um, that you're really, really passionate about in a short enough amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think people, sword people feel that way all the time as well. But um, I think like my main thing with my work is just the ability to watch a rocket be assembled right in front of me and having a sort of cursory understanding of how to do it myself and teaching other people. Um, it's like 14 year old me that basically decided, okay, well, I guess that astronaut dream is dead, you know, would never have believed that I would be driving through the desert at three in the morning to meet William Shatner as he came off the new show. <laughs> you were there. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that is, that is probably peak nerd. I cried for like a week and a half. <laughs> um, and, and like, yeah, like it's, it's uh, the absolute privilege of my life. Um, mm -hmm. the, the stuff that I get to see that I don't get to talk about makes me crazy because I want to just scream like, did you know that this is happening right now? But you know, the ISS is going to get decommissioned in our lifetimes. We're yeah. going to need a space station. To unless, it. unless, unless it does a seventies and ends up, um, <laughs> you know, like the last refuge of humanity last, part of right, the moon. Right. Ugh, no, that's the other thing. No. People, people always talk about, um, uh, space habitats, like they're going to be really pleasant. No. Um, you know, like. That's like, what Neil, Neil gets absolutely right in 70s. Yeah. It's like, no, this yeah. is, this is, this is nasty and smelly and uncomfortable and dangerous. And you're going to die of radiation sickness eventually or cancer or something horrible. And your retinas and, are going to detach. <laughs> yeah. And it's just nasty. Yeah. Like the, um, a lot of people say like, oh, why are, you know, why are these billionaires funding all this space thing so they can live on Elysium? Elysium is, Elysium is not happening <laughs> in no. our lifetimes. Uh, if you ever really want to fun Google, Google how to poop on a spaceship. 
<laughs> no, I bet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so, bad enough on an airliner. Exactly. And don't, oh. don't try it in a Cessna 152. The only place to go there is your trousers. There ain't nowhere else. <laughs> I, I seriously have to ask because, you know, NASA astronauts have to wear like diapers and stuff when they're training. Mm. Do you have to wear diapers? Well, no, no, no. Um, because the, the plane has like a maximum range of about four hours. Okay. And, and, my flights, the longest flight I've ever done was like an hour and 10, hour and 20, something like that. Yeah. And yeah. even I can hold my, my week <laughs> for that long. Uh, but I know that, I know that people who do like serious gliding, mm-hmm. like really serious glide, glides. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the ladies do, but the, the chaps wear a kind of, there's a special name for it, something like a Texas catheter or something like that, where it's basically a condom that you put on and it's got a tube coming out the end going into a bag so you can wee without getting out of your seat because there is nowhere to go on a glider either see that's dedication to flight like that is true yeah i'm 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 not there yet yeah yeah exactly so that's um there's a lot of undignified aspects of space travel that i don't think people are putting into account and i know a lot of people are talking about how like i'm gonna go live on mars your life on mars is going to be awful (laughs) Yeah, it, like, it's, it's, it's going to be like living in, you know, up on a mountain in a desert with only what you carried with you on your back for the next yeah. 20 years. It's camping with a, with a serious difficulty level. And then like we, yeah, like stuff that's going to happen to your body is going to be pretty nuts. So yeah. one of the things that I love to talk about is, um, is again, like how do we make space as accessible as possible for people that have disabilities or people that um, aren't super scientists, aren't mathematicians, we're going to get there. The discussions are happening and they're happening mm-hmm. all over the place. There's a bunch of, um, th- there's actually a group within Blue Origin that I'm a part of called New Hawking. And it is our, named after Stephen Hawking, it is our sort of employee resource group for employees with disabilities and uh, neurodiverse employees. So we gather there to sort of talk about navigating our own jobs and careers within the space Mm -hmm. industry with these, you know, with these stuff, the stuff that we have to deal with. And I found it to be like one of the most um, awesome places for like watching the smartest people in the world navigate things that like we all deal with and all of the stuff that we deal with is the same. Like it's very, it's, it's like a very leveling thing to be like, I have PTSD. I can now talk to a bunch of rocket scientists that also have PTSD and figure out how they get through their extremely like sort of mentally heavy workload all day long. (laughs) It's really hard. Um, And I learned so much from them. Can I I ask PTSD from what? Oh, my car accident. <laughs> okay. And, okay, we, we were going to circle back to your car crash anyway. Yeah. So what, 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 the, the last we had, you had gone to the doctor after the car crash and told, given the leaflet about concussion, and then we sort of <laughs> went off into astronaut training and William Chatter and stuff. Right. Yeah. So that, you know, that was very key for me is I had just started my job and the pamphlet said, avoid screens and yep. rest in a dark room. And I was like, well, both of those things aren't going to happen. (laughs) I just started a new job. Uh, I went into work the next day and like could barely go up and down stairs. Can I just say that's very American of you? Isn't it so American? It's awful. Um, (laughs) 
Yeah. So I did that. And uh, what I didn't do, well, while I was physically able to move around, go to work in the morning, um, the physical and mental effects started piling up. Um, yeah, and, was, and a new job is a very cognitively demanding space. Even if it's a new job yeah. doing something very simple, it's that everything around you is new and you have to reorient to it and find out, you know, where is the bathroom and where is yes. the water fountain and who are the nice people I should hang out with and the nasty people I should avoid and all that sort of stuff. And that's all new. <laughs> exactly. As well as whatever job you're doing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. As well as feeling a lot of imposter syndrome over not being a rocket scientist at a rocket company, which ah, okay. um, is like a whole nother thing we could get into about work is like, it's like everybody, if you don't think you can work for a space company, please apply to work at a space company because you'd be surprised where the niches are. Cause obviously I've found mine. Right. Anyway, but um the uh, so the first thing that happened was I stopped sleeping. Never had that problem in my whole life. Could okay. not sleep. Went about a week without getting more than like an hour or so a day. Finally went to the ER. That's really bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they were like, "Okay, you're having trouble sleeping. Here's sleeping pills." Um, oh. <laughs> Oh, God, no. I know. Um, and one of those issues, and I think a lot of people struggle with this, is that if you look healthy, if you look um, phys physically fit, like I've always been a little on the skinny side, but I'm not healthy. I'm not healthy. They, <laughs> the doctors look at you and they're like, oh, you're fine. You know, yeah. you'll feel fine in three weeks. I kept hearing that over and over like, oh, you're having trouble sleeping. You're having trouble. Work on stress. Do some yoga. Here's some pills. Um it was a disaster. I finally had like a full blown, like, I don't know, nervous breakdown mm -hmm. in a theme park <laughs> because okay. we went on a on an amusement park ride that felt very familiar to the car crash to me. And oh, God. Okay. that's when I realized, do I have PTSD? And again, very American. Mental illness is not something my, I'm from Midwestern farming stock. We don't get sick. We don't feel sad. Um, right. Well, <laughs> you, don't, you don't let anybody know that you feel mm -hmm, sick or sad. Mm -hmm, uh, yeah, yeah. You've got to hide yeah. it. Um, yes. You know, we're very religious. God will fix everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And you know, I want to make a point that I'm still a little bit religious, not in like an asshole way, but like, but like God will not fix anything, everything. Like you have to fix yourself and get the help you need. But anyway, so that's when I started exploring actual cognitive behavioral therapy for PTSD, which is very similar uh -huh. to, and that's again, at work, talking to people with PTSD, there's a lot of veterans in the space industry mm -hmm. because of defense and all that stuff. So yeah. um, those veterans, a lot of them have PTSD. And it was like, no, 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 go get CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. It's awesome. I think everyone should get it. It's amazing. Um, well, so everyone now, should get it if they have behavioral traits that they don't want. Yeah. Like if you, um, you know, fear public speaking, if you are... Um, you know, if you're like scared to fly on a plane, all this stuff, like you should get CBT anyway. Um, so I started doing that. Um, and, um, you know, I went through a full round of it and I was still spending like the, by this time the pandemic had hit and I was still spending like good chunks of the day, just in bed, just right. not able to get out of bed. And, uh, 
that's when um, I went to another doctor and that doctor said, you have post-concussion syndrome, which is something that can happen when you don't take care of yourself after mm. a concussion. Uh, a lot, a lot of people in the military and football players have post-concussion syndrome. And I think, I think we will find fairly soon that a lot of people who do a lot of historical martial arts tournaments will be coming up with the same yeah. thing. <laughs> and so that comes as full circle to why haven't I trained? Um, I am still... Like, I get nervous when I'm in a car, but I've done some crazy shit since my accident. Like, I drove through a flash flood in Texas. Like, I have, okay. you know, like, I have ah. done stuff that I know I can do. But the idea of going back and willingly putting my head in in a place where I could get hit by hit freaks me out. I have a couple of thoughts. Yeah. First is, um, is there a good reason not to wear a bike helmet when you drive? Huh. Um. So like the driving stuff for me, I, I would say, I would say it doesn't address the root cause mentally for you, which is. No, no, um, no. I mean, to prevent concussion, prevent oh. it in the first place. Because, because you got concussion because you, your head got hit in some way. Right. If, if, I mean, it, it would make sense to me if anyone, everyone in a car had to wear a bike helmet type thing, because honestly, it would prevent an awful lot of this sort of injury. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something to look into. Um, for me, it was more addressing the the issue of, so like I work in rockets, right? And I work with airplanes. Um, it is safer to drive a car <laughs> than to do either of those things. And it's my really? whole life. Oh, yeah. That's not. So, <laughs> Statistically speaking... Oh. Commercial, being a passenger in a commercial aviation is much safer than being a passenger in a car. I think we'd have to look into that. But I just feel... But that's my understanding anyway. Yeah. I mean, you, we should you look into that. Right, but, yeah. But, um, but reasonably, I mean... I, mean I, I was told when I was training, when I was starting for my pilot training thing, mm -hmm. that statistically speaking, I am more likely to be killed in my car on the way to or from the airfield than I am to get killed in the plane. Really? Even in those yeah. single engine planes? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, okay. One funny thing about the, the pilot training, <laughs> like, like learning to handle the plane is, is a lot of it. It's yeah. Maybe the first 10, 12 hours or so, so you get like the basics down. Right. And then an awful lot of what happens next is, what do you do when your engine catches fire? What do you do when your engine catches or fails on takeoff? What do you do when your engine fails at 3,000 feet? What do you do when, when this happens, this happens or that happens? It's like, this, it's all disaster planning. Yep. That's right? 100%. Still. Uh, yeah. yeah, both airlines and rockets. That's you just described yeah. training. Um, <laughs> you did, um, but yeah, the um, I, I think if for me it was more I can do it. Now my next thing is how do I get back to training um, where I'm going to get booped on the head and okay w without getting shaky, without wanting to quit out, and without re-injuring myself. <laughs> okay, this is this is at Lonin, right? Yeah. Okay. Here's a thought. Um, firstly, you can train without ever getting your head hit. Mm -hmm. If you're training with competent people who understand that you mustn't get hit in the head mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. whatever reason. I'm literally right? taking notes. Like, I mean, wear decent shoulder pads and get hit on the shoulder instead. Mm -hmm. That's one. Secondly, you can get adequate head protection 
for example, the kind of helmet that sits on your shoulders. So any impact to the head is taken on the shoulders, right? Literally, you can move your head around inside your helmet because it's basically inside a steel box. Yeah. And the box isn't touching your head. Obviously, you have an arming cap in case you kind of bang your own head against your helmet. But Mm -hmm. um, I mean, uh, there's there's something so big. And obviously, you would need some kind of fencing visor on. Uh, but when they're open face, you can literally put your head out of the helmet and look around and then bring it back in like a tortoise. <laughs> right? Cool. And that's historical. That's historical. Yeah. Um, that I, I would probably go one of those routes to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you can, um, you can use protection that's much better than a fencing mask. Like, for example, one of the Terry Tyndall style masks that has suspension. Mm. Yes. Um, but if I was in your situation, I would go with one of the first two options and or I would do something like put a balloon on your mask and anyone who pops a balloon owes you 50 push-ups. Ah! Okay, that's right? so funny because we some, actually did that. Yeah, we do that yeah, as a game. Some, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, maybe balloons aren't the best thing because people will be encouraged to pop the balloon <laughs> um but but some way some way of like some way of indicating super light contact would also mm. be possible so um i mean training with sharps is an obvious way to go yeah yeah right because no one is going to clout you in the head with a sharp sword <laughs> unless they're trying to kill you anyway, in which case right. in which case you're, you have other problems I have other problems bigger problems um, so you're very unlikely to get hit hard in the head if you're training with sharps it has other risks associated with it yeah but, um, yeah so I, I think also I would stay the hell away from training with beginners because it's not mm. fair to put that on a beginner okay um Now, what's your favorite weapon? Longsword. Longsword. Okay, so yeah, yeah getting I'm cut, basic. cut in the head. <laughs> getting cut in the head is is a big part of that. But what should I explore that isn't longsword? Because it's been a while, so what if I go pick something else up and it feels good because now I have this added right. sort of complexity? You, you can try it. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. I mean, you are very, very unlikely to get anything concussion-related from using sport fencing implements because mm. they're so light um it's 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 i mean maybe someone who really knows what they're doing can do a thrust with an epee that will cause you a problem <laughs> if they do it deliberately to hit you really hard because there are ways of holding the epee where you can put a pulse of force through it and it hits really hard before it bends oh right? thank you yeah it's really <laughs> nasty <laughs> Um, um, I, I, I don't think I should perhaps explain quite how to do it on, on here and I probably shouldn't explain why I learned it either <laughs> but, but so I mean you, I don't suppose you're terribly interested in sport fencing um, um, there's just not a club like Lonan would be my club but yeah and, of course yeah. But, but, but dueling sabre mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like like Bwahaha, probably do some version of Dueling they Saber. Do. Right. But Dueling Saber, but you use the Sport Saber, which is too light for proper Dueling Saber. Mm-hmm. But you would 
And if you're wearing a, even a normal fencing mask, someone would really have to be misbehaving to give you any kind of concussive type strike with a, with a mm-hmm. modern sports saber. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It is literally designed so that Olympic level athletes can whip it at you and there's practically no risk of injury. <laughs> I mean, you might get stripes from, from that sort of thing, but you know, I, obviously it's something you'd want to test because mm-hmm. every brain is different, every head is different, and it might feel one way or the other. But yeah, dueling saber with with sports fencing sabers, mm-hmm. unlikely to cause a problem, I would say. Cool. Um, stay away from rapiers because the thrust of the face is essential. And yeah. it's actually much harder to armor against the thrust of the face in a way that protects the brain than it is to armor against a cut to the head. Really? Yeah. Why Why is that? Because your head um, hits the front of the mask? or No, it's because of where the force is going. Right? Um. If you think about it, the force when you're cutting down on somebody's head, the force, if it's channeled around the skull, it can go down into the shoulders and it can be safely distributed throughout your whole body. Mm. Right? If it's coming forwards at you and it hits you in the face, there's not a lot of mass to absorb that. The energy is going in the wrong, or the force is going in the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> and um, disaster yeah. strikes. For, for, yeah. <laughs> for, for the listeners, I was just miming a, a sword coming towards my face and I managed to knock my own headphones off because I am this, <laughs> this effortlessly graceful sword. That's how dangerous it really is. <laughs> yeah, you stab yourself in the face. Um, yeah, so it kind of, it kind of can jolt the head back. And if it's done at speed, it will give you that kind of shake to the, to the head that's really not good for you. Okay. So I would stay away from rapier. Foil is okay because the face isn't a target and the weapon is very light. So it doesn't give anything like the same level of force as a rapier. Gotcha. Um, you could do Mesa. Yeah. You, you could do some of the heavier bladed weapons, but you can't do it the way everyone else is doing it. Because they're safe having somebody just plonk them gently in the head wearing a mask. Um, one thing I have seen that was absolutely gorgeous to watch um, it was Roland Varchika and I think Jake Norwood did a Messer demonstration bout wearing just the Schlager eye guards, which are like these these steel uh, yeah. like steel fencing mask eye protectors and a nose protector like on a Norman helmet, yep. and it leaves the rest of the head and face totally unprotected, right? And again, if you train a lot with sharps, that kind of stuff is fine. And they were they were touching each other, but there was they weren't going for a bleeding head wound as would have been historical, right? right? Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a question of training with the right people, training with the right equipment, making the right compromises, um, and making sure that whoever you're training with is capable in all senses of the word of making the necessary allowances. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge because I think I, I false started a couple of times where I did go back and it was to a beginner class and I got bonked and yeah, I was don't like, Mara, because it's true. Beginners, they, they just, they haven't learned that skill yet. And, right. um, and, and that's not their fault. <laughs> it's not their fault. And, nope. you know, they are 
they're learning and they, they learn by making mistakes. And, yep. and the thing is, what is a safe margin for error for people who haven't had a traumatic brain injury is not a safe margin for error for you. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, the interesting thing to note is that with post-concussion syndrome, it can get better over time if you baby it a lot. Yeah. Um, it still makes you prone to concussion in the future. So yeah. if you've had a concussion before, which I know a lot of PEMA people have. Yeah. Y'all are bonkers. Um, <laughs> no, no, excuse me. No, no. Don't <laughs> not treat you. me in that. Not, not you. Me. I am no. bonkers. And that's what I love about I am your. Super careful. I know you are. Um, and that's what I loved about your workshops when we had you out um, to Seattle to teach is that we we didn't armor up for anything. You were teaching us Fiore, and we learned Fiore. We learned Spear. And we learned all kinds of stuff. Like, but we we would put on helmets occasionally, but it wasn't like full gear, let's go throw each other into walls stuff. Because I, you know, that's not how you learn the yeah, actual that, skill. I mean, that, that, <laughs> has its, that has its place. It does. But its place <laughs> isn't a day seminar that's open to beginners. Yes. And this is where I'm very right. different, I think, from a lot of HEMA people, or I'm one of the HEMA people that is very different in this way, which is that, like, I am not a gear up and throw people into walls thing. I love to watch people do that. I think that's, it's so much fun to watch. Like I love going to tournaments. I did compete in one tournament in 2015 and I placed dead last. I had so much fun. I don't think I scored a single point. I'm just not a competitive person. Um, I don't, I don't get the, the, um, I, I don't get like the happy, happy high that people get from, mm -hmm. from competing. It, it mostly, it just kind of freaks me out. And, but, but in another way, it, it's more like, I just enjoy watching other people do fun things um, <laughs> yeah. and, and organizing it. <laughs> and, sure. um, and I'm not a comp and I'm not a competitor. It's one of the things I like about HEMA is I don't have to be a competitor to be involved. Right. So, yeah. <clears throat> oh, uh, one thing, um, just circling back to the, safe ways to train yeah. post-concussion. Um, the nylon longswords and most padded longswords are not a safer option. Really? Not even the little really foam not. guys? Okay. If it's a very lightweight foam sword intended for children to hit each other without being able to hurt each other, maybe. Okay. But uh, a regular weight nylon or wooden waster is probably more dangerous to you than a steel sword. Hmm because of the nature of the impact. I've had right? the worst bruises padded, in my life. <laughs> right. And, and if it's padded, it's worse. Right. Huh. Because with a sharp concut, with a sharp strike, metal on metal, basically the energy gets dispersed really quickly. Hmm. Right. Um, like a bare knuckle punch to the face. It's not pleasant, but um, when you cover the thing that's striking or make it softer, what happens is instead of it being a slap, it becomes a push, right? And the slap will maybe split your scalp, maybe, you know, you know, hurt the outside of your head, right? But it won't give the brain that kind of kind of mm. juggle in the same way. I mean, yes, you, you absolutely can get concussion with a steel sword and a mask. Absolutely. And that's probably how most people who get concussions from swords get it. But it's a mistake to think of a nylon long sword or a wooden waster or a padded sword that's reasonably heavy 
as a safer alternative, it's probably worse. Mm. Okay. For this. Just, okay. I thought I'd better just throw that in there. In That's case. interesting. Um, I'm going to take that to the club and ask them some questions. Now, actually, I have a, a, a question that, um, seeing as you are an expert in how people learn and in organizing information so that adults can learn it efficiently, you've read my books, you've been to my classes and stuff. What could I be doing better? Oh, gosh. Um that's I'm first of all I don't even I've been doing this for I've been doing instructional design for 16 years and I still don't feel like an expert because every time I read a paper it contradicts what I learned <laughs> yeah, ten, five years ago like the science is changing so much but um honestly one of the coolest things like one of the the coolest things we ever did with your work was Eric Arst uh made us learn the form yeah 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 and it was hysterical because it's very sort of dance influenced, I think. Um, like we were we were moving through it as a whole club, like slowly as we're practicing uh, okay. before, you, before you showed up in Seattle. That's, that's not how I trained it, but yeah, okay. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> no. well, I found that's it helpful fine. because it was... Good, no, 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 it's just, okay. Like, so for me, the muscle memory doesn't kick in, doesn't kick in until I've done something a thousand times with HEMA. Um, okay. Maybe not exactly a thousand times, but a lot. Um, and I mean, this the I think the challenge that I've had in the past with your work and this the advice that I would give to like all clubs that have you out for symposiums is you should train before you get there to your work very specifically and like pick something to focus on because this is yeah. huge this is a big book um with a lot uh, of information she just held up the medieval longsword yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not recording video so no one can see oh okay i didn't know that so so this is a big book and adults tap out in attention span after like to, to like something they memorize, it depends. It can be like 20 minutes, it can be an hour. <laughs> um, but repetition, it actually takes somebody hearing something for three times before they learn it. So we always say three times. That's in the corporate training world. I think for HEMA, it's way more than three times. I have to hear it. I have to see it. I have to do it three times in doot, doot, doot. Um, and what I would advise clubs to do before having you out to do the work is train to, to specific things in your work, talk to you in advance and say, hey, these are yeah. the things we want to train or what do you think we should train and then train to it. And then after you leave, that learning has to continue. It can't just yeah. be that we have guy out. And, and I think we did do this at Lonin, but, but we could have done more, which is, I, you know, we have you out and then you leave and it's like, okay, back to, back to sparring, right? Like, but it's like, no, like, let's cover what we covered in guys' <laughs> This, thing, is, the, this you know? is the story of my fucking life. It's like, <laughs> I, I go to a place and I, I, I ask them what they want to cover. I teach them that stuff. All of it is on video somewhere. And I make sure they have access to it in book form and video form and everything else. And I come back six months later or a year later or whatever it is. And it's all gone. And I have to show it the whole lot all over again because they don't lock it in. I know right. it's just it is the story of my life but that's okay yeah, I, and I mean, part of that it is, doesn't bother me just let me just be really right. clear about this I am completely fine with that because one of the, I'm not naturally a terribly patient person but I honestly don't care how many times I have to take somebody through a particular thing until they get it if it, it's once or a thousand times it makes no difference to me 
because I'm doing what I want to be doing, which is teaching somebody what they want to learn. Yeah, right? exactly. So, so, and that's the instructor's yeah. challenge, right? Is you can lead people to water. You can lead people yeah. to water. You can lead people to water. You can't make them drink. I'm also not criticizing like what our coaches did in class because it no, could sure. be very well that um, you came out, you taught, and then I skipped practice after you left and they covered it and then I missed yeah. it. However, <laughs> yeah, there's also the forgetfulness curve, which is something that all adults have, which is we, you know, people always say, oh, it's like riding a bike, forgetting that most of us learned how to ride bikes as children. That is locked into our heads. We know how to ride bikes because we started doing it when we were five, six, seven years old. But also uh, the bike is a natural feedback mechanism that it never, oh. ever lies to you, oh. right? When you get on a bike, you either ride it or you don't. And every time you make a mistake, the bike will wobble or it will fall over. Every oh, single time. And that doesn't change. That is absolutely consistent. And then, and it doesn't change as you get older. It doesn't change mm. the matter what kind of bike you have. It's, it's, it's like riding a bike because it's always the same. It, and it's a perfect feedback mechanism. Yeah. Whereas swords are not because, mm. you know, I might be doing some horrible mistake and this opponent isn't experienced enough to notice it and hit me for it. And that opponent is. And so sometimes I'll get hit and sometimes I won't. And I won't know why. Okay, well, I don't, me personally, I would be able to figure it out because, you know, my job at all. But it's, yeah. it, one of the hardest things for us to do in teaching this art is to create these consistent feedback mechanisms yes. that are always the same. Like mm-hmm. you know, when my kids were learning to walk, I would tell them, I remember when they were very little, like two years old, I'd say, now, Mr. Gravity is your best friend. Because he will never lie to you. <laughs> That's awesome. Right? And, and you know, kids learn to walk really quickly, even though it's a fantastically neurologically complicated skill, mm. because the feedback mechanism is absolutely consistent. Okay. Right? They yeah. never get to walk wrong and get away with it. <laughs> Whereas we get to train wrong and get away with it all the time. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's, that's the problem. And that's, and that's, um, so again, like the forgetfulness curve, you walk away from something for too long as an adult, it's not baked into your brain. We just have less neuroplasticity. We just don't have it baked in to the same extent as children do. Um, the other day I, I was goofing around with my nephew who is six and I taught him how to do a fendente. Like, I don't even know, like six months ago. And you know, he's six. He's also small for his age. He like, doesn't have full control over his body yet. And he threw a fendente at me as soon as I walked through the door. And Lee. And I was like, how do you remember this? That was six months ago. I know for a fact I don't remember things I learned six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't practice them, if I didn't do it. And I said to his mom, is he practicing? She's like, no. She's like, I didn't know what a fendente was. Like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so it's just children adapt and they learn. Adults don't because uh, adults are very geared towards why do I need to know this information? Um, another thing that you teach that I think is really valuable is you always talk about the end result a lot like if you don't want to get hit (laughs) do this (laughs) and and that's how adults learn that is how we learn we want to know why we need to know the information i'm not just going to sit down and listen to you lecture about swords i'm going to sit down and listen to you lecture about swords because i want to be better at this thing and i don't want to get hit (laughs) I, I, i have a like a standard mantra thing one of the things i when i'm teaching teachers Everything you teach your student should be a solution to a problem that they have experienced, right? Yep. So 
you want to teach them, I don't know, this particular technique. Okay, yep. what problem is that technique solving? Oh, I, somebody's trying to hit me like this, and this solves that problem. Okay, so hit them like that first, and get them to hit each other like that first. Mm-hmm. And then they go, ah, I don't want to get hit with the sword. I want to do the hitting. Right, so yep. what do we do? Ah, we do this thing against that thing, and it makes sense. It, yes. They have this kind of, it's, it's not arbitrary. Yep. Right? It's not this unconnected thing that they just have to learn in isolation. It is a solution to a problem that they've actually experienced. And that is such a thing in instructional design too. So bringing it back to rockets and airplanes, like we call it scenario-based training in, in our industry. And I want to sit somebody down, let's say a rocket scientist whose specialty is fluid dynamics. Fluid dynamics is the world's most difficult thing in the whole world to learn. People get PhDs in it, and I will be like, explain fluid dynamics to me. And they'll laugh, and they'll say, I don't have enough education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so so sitting down and getting someone, and someone's like, okay, we need to teach these people this thing. And I'm like, great, give me the synopsis. And they will drop a 400-page document on my desk and say, this is how it works. None of that's going to matter to the person who needs to learn it unless they know why they need to learn it. So then I say, I need to get an example of when you failed. That is such a hard question to push people for. People hate failure. Engineers hate failure. (laughs) Um, Airline pilots hate failure. You have to think about what the end result is, right? If I fail, Mm. what happens? The stakes are incredibly high. Exactly. So talking about failure is really scary for people, but it's also, unfortunately, super memorable. It's how I sink Mm. my teeth into that information. So talking about, like, I I always laugh about how Eric Arst would describe things about, like, when you take down this this opponent, then you can use your sword like this to, and I don't even remember, I don't remember the name of the move. You know what I mean? But I do remember him saying, and then you can pry open their armor like it's a can opener. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I will never forget that sentence. That's a new sentence. Um, <laughs> so that that's the kind of thing, learning through failure, that everyone needs to needs to work through. And yeah. the best coaches structure their lessons around it. Right. Uh, every every drill has an optimal rate of failure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from a safety perspective, the optimal rate of failure is zero. Mm-hmm. But from a learning a physical skill, the optimal rate of failure in, in martial arts is usually somewhere between 20 and 40%. Mm. Right? Okay. When you're, when you're doing a drill, let's say you're hitting me in the head and I'm learning how to defend against it, you should be doing the strike to my head at a pace and intensity where I get the action to work about 60, 70, 80% of the time, mm. right? Yeah. Because if it works all the time, it's too easy. I'm not learning anything. If it doesn't yep. work enough, I get discouraged and think that just, there's something wrong with the technique. But if it's in that happy zone, then the learning is extremely fast. It's like the Mr. Gravity thing again. You know, mm. Mr. Gravity's job when teaching children to walk is to make sure they fall down every time they get it wrong. Yes, Oh, okay, you, you said lots of nice things about about my work, but I haven't actually got anything that I can fix. About what? About my work. I, I asked them, I asked them oh. to tell me what I could do better. God. Um. If that's not a fair question because you haven't read any of my stuff in a long time, then we can skip it. It's okay. I no, just, no. Just, when you have an expert sitting in front of you, you want to actually you know extract maximum value out of their heads. Right. No, Um. 
uh, again, feel uncomfortable with the expert title and then laughing at myself because I really do have a lot of experience. Um, cutting down on lecture, unfortunately, and I hate this, is the number one thing that you and almost everyone can do. And yeah, I know. I, I know. know. Um, My number one piece of advice to every instructor I ever teach to teach is talk less. Yes. And, and it sucks because some people want to talk a lot about this stuff and and they learn through discussion. However, um, the average attention span of all of us is right. degrading every time they put out a new app where the time limit on a video is a minute long, you know? Oh, so yeah. yeah, like uh, fractured attention spans are my biggest challenge in my career um, that I have to deal with. You know, people give me content and it's, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours long. I have to tell them, I'm sorry, like, I, I've i got 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, I've got 20 minutes before I lose them. And there's a lot of ways around that. There's, um, you know, because I'd still have to teach all the material. So it's activities, it's scenario-based, it's memory tricks to get the learner around sitting. Because the minute they sit, they look at their phones. And I am not the kind of instructor that's going to make them put their phones in the in a basket in the front of the classroom because <laughs> these are adults and yeah. it shouldn't <laughs> and, be necessary. And yeah, um, but we also have to account for neurodivergence, and a lot of people do have attention stuff that they're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, ADD and ADHD is super, super skyrocketing on the rise because more and more people are getting diagnosed, and we have to be able to work around that. And the only way to do it is to add more activity more like co-op based play. So like break into breakout groups and do this and then come back and then talk about what you learned. Getting them to do a lot of the talking or a lot of the lecturing is another way to get people to, you know, keep their attention. But overall lecture, yeah. Yeah, I've been to... <laughs> working on talking less for a long time. And it's been about four years since you were last in one of my seminars. I know. I yeah. Right, okay. So the next time I'm in Seattle. I want to come. <laughs> come and even if you just just want to come and just watch for a, a little while because mm -hmm. maybe you don't want to risk your head in that particular environment whatever, that's fine okay but i want i want you to tell me whether i am talking less than i used to i think okay. i'm talking about half as much okay yeah and you know i hate i hate telling experts to not talk because really what i want to do is just sit and listen to you talk all day like I mean, when I have but, a captive okay, audience. But that's different. <laughs> but, you know, like on the podcast, that's fine. Yeah. In the pub, that's fine. Yeah. But in the class where people are supposed to be learning physical skills, it's not fine. Yeah, that's true. Right. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah you, you tell me to shut up all you want. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll just, I'll bring like a, like a flag and I'll wave it when you start talking. <laughs> yeah. Or, or get one of those air horns. Yes. <laughs> Yes. That won't freak right, okay. people out at all. So time me, like I've got thirty seconds. All right, and thirty seconds. Uh, <laughs> Actually, you know, when I'm when I'm teaching people to teach, one of the things I do, and also when I examine, um, I have a stopwatch, and if they talk for, um, I forgot, I forgot the exact rules. I, I it's been a little while since I've been in that situation, but it's something like yeah. if they talk for more than three minutes at any time, that's an automatic fail. Mm. Um, because no one is going to remember the first two minutes, right? Anyway, and in the course of a class, if it's more than two minutes talking to four minutes, people doing stuff, something like, I've got it written down somewhere. I should know this. Um, that's also an automatic fail because mm. they're talking too much. The students aren't moving enough. 
Um, yeah. And I use a stopwatch. Yeah. I sit there with a stopwatch and I That's ostentatiously good. time it. So when they start yeah. talking, it goes on. They go, da da, and I wrote it down. It's like, and then I show them afterwards and they're like, I stood there and talked for six and a half minutes. Like, oh, yes, you did. You told them all about the economic conditions in the city of such and such in such and such a year, which led to this particular development. It's like, that's fucking irrelevant. You're trying to teach them to hit each other in the head. But please make a podcast about it because I would listen to that. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And yeah, that's true. And that's when we talk about learning modalities, right? What's the most appropriate way to teach the material and the yeah. most popular way in the sort of corporate training world is multimodal so you've got your lecture you've got your hands-on you've got e-learning which is like that everybody's had to everybody's kids had to do it during the pandemic everyone hates it yeah. we can talk about that in detail i don't want to um <laughs> you've got e-learning you've got surveys you've got um you know like devices in the classroom simulators a big one in aerospace games. simulators games. Yep. Um, I actually designed a board game uh, for blue origin that really? is, is played by like new hires. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's like the, can anyone the, buy it? No, 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 <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, there are actually some great space board games. Um, High Frontier is a really good one okay. um, that a lot of people in the space industry really love because it's very real. Like it gets into okay. sort of the realness of it. But yeah, um, that uh, I know you designed that card game. Yep. Yeah, that's an awesome learning tool. Like people call it, it a game. It's not a game. It's a learning tool. <laughs> like nah, I just... <laughs> it's, a, it's, a game it's, it's a learning tool that's designed as a game. Exactly. Exactly. And it, and and it, it actually originally, yeah. the original impulse for it was people find it difficult to learn the Italian names for things like Fendente. Right? Yep. And so having it on the cards, they learn it super quick. Yes. A hundred percent. It's like, um, it's such a good learning tool. So yeah, that's board games are great. Um, yeah, I, okay. that's the only thing. <laughs> now, we are I, I, you've been extremely generous with your time already, and I have a couple of questions I have to get to before the end. No, so let me it. just yeah, Let me just jump in there. Okay, so what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Um, so, like, personally, um, I want to learn more sewing, um, and I want to start making historical clothing. Obviously, the okay. Venn diagram of people that are – into historical clothing and are into swords is like basically a circle. Um, <laughs> so I, I've been um, volunteering at the Renaissance Fair out here in the past, uh, not since my accident, or actually, yeah, since my accident, because I don't have to get hit in the head when I do it. Um, I would hope, I mean, if you get hit in the head when sewing, then something's gone very wrong. <laughs> no, no, I mean, like at volunteering, um, we, we have a group that does volunteering at the Renaissance Fair every year and teaching swords to children. Oh, so right. oh, cool. it's super okay. fun. Anyway, but need a costume for that. So I would like to start getting more into that. Um, and, uh, long-term, um, really I'm, my plan is to just stay at blue origin until I get to go to space. So. <laughs> okay. So do they get, a, do they give you a good employee discount? Oh yeah. 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 Flights are free. Return flights probably going to be more expensive. That's <laughs> 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 it. Okay. So, um, you're looking into like 
recreating medieval garments. Yeah, that's actually why I started doing embroidery during the pandemic. I mean, part of it was because all of my um, actual hobbies, travel and swords, went bye-bye. Yes. Um, and I missed stabbing things. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, you see, so you see a connection between needlework and swords because it's a sharp, pointy object. And you stab things with it. See, and you need fine. to have a lot of patience with yourself. Right. Just right. In I general. do a lot of woodwork, right? Yeah. And, you know, most people don't see any connection between swords and woodwork. And it's like sharp steel. Yeah. Like, and actually with woodwork, I actually get to cut stuff all the time. But you just said you're not patient, but you have to be super patient to do that kind of detail-oriented handiwork. Um... Yeah, like, I'm are you are you throwing things across your workshop on a regular basis? No, <laughs> no, actually, no, because because it's 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 a different headspace. Mm. But also, I am you know I used to work as a cabinet maker, um, like forty hours a week for some four or five years. So I'm actually really fast. Oh, when I when I choose to be okay, right? So you know I'll cut a row of dovetails. It's a do 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 do, right? So there's no need to be patient because I'm moving quickly. <laughs> okay, um, so I'm so not. It's, it's, it's not this kind of it's not this kind of spiritual sliding of the plane over the wood. I mean, very occasionally, oh. maybe, but generally speaking, it's like okay, I want I want to get the wood to this condition, and I might have three different planes: one for fast stock removal, one for making it straight, and then another one to put a finish on it. And I will be I'll be working like flat out. It's oh. very physical. Wow. Okay. Um, well, I had no idea. I that's, that's kind of. I was I was trained in a in a professional environment where time is money, literally, um, and I've just sort of that's how I learned to do it, mm. mm-hmm. um, and it's it's satisfying to get it done, and, yeah, you know, get it together and actually get it working, and you you know you, you learn where the compromises matter, mm-hmm. like um, I have this little little chest of drawers. I'm going to move the camera and you can see it under my, under my monitor. I'll take a picture oh, of the show Oh, that's notes, cute. Which has these visible, hang on, let me see it. That's visible dovetails on the outside. Now, I spend a lot of time on those dovetails because they are immaculate, right? <laughs> but so that's where you're are, just like... Yeah, no, that's, where I, that's where I did it super carefully. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the dovetails in the backs of the drawers, they're pretty clean. But they're not quite to the same level because no one except me is ever going to see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I made mistakes, because I, again, I move quickly and I make mistakes, um, instead of hiding them, like there's a groove that doesn't belong in this drawer side, I patched it with a contrasting wood so that I could see where the mistakes were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't mind making mistakes when I'm, when I'm working. Everything that you're describing is still a study in patience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 honestly, and creativity honestly, honestly compared to having kids not really <laughs> <laughs> okay i don't have kids so maybe that's the that's the difference um no um and then and then the other thing that i needed time away from screens i think that mm. is another reason yeah, you, know, you you um you play video games with swords in them and you're like well, I'd, I'd prefer to do this in real life. <laughs> so yeah. that's what leads you to swords. Um, same thing with embroidery. I need a time away from screens, but um, I'm also kind of dabbling in this sort of concept of like old, old versus, you know, 
old things and new technology. And so embroidery being an art that like was embraced by mostly women, um, mostly as like they literally uh, couched it historically as um, especially in the Victorian era as a display of Christian patience, which is just like, Oh my God. Like, no, like we just like stabbing things. But, um, (laughs) but um, what I wanted to do is kind of get into the headspace of sort of that time period and what it's like. And I'm just like, you know, I see people doing this in my costume dramas. You know, I'm obsessed with like all costume dramas ever Mm -hmm. made pride and prejudice, all that stuff. And like, I want to try it. So I just started trying it and it ended up being like one of the best things in the whole world for my brain, um, yeah. which is damaged <laughs> and um, not damaged. I'm fine. But, um, and, and in terms of like hyper-focus and staying away from screens, staying away from the news, it's um, it's been brilliant for my anxiety. So um, I also have the hard and fast rule where I'm never going to monetize it so that I never stress about it. A lot of people monetize their hobbies and it's very, very bad. Um, I know a lot of people in HEMA do it and you do it. it. (laughs) See, I I originally, I monetized my woodwork and I went to work as a cabinet maker and Mm. it was not good for me at all. Mm, I I hated it. Right. Uh, Now I don't monetize my woodwork at all. I make stuff for my friends. I make stuff for, you know, myself and my family and whatever. Mm. Um, and if, if someone wants me to do something for them woodwork wise, and it would be kind of uncomfortable for them not to pay me, they can bring me wine or <laughs> they can make a donation to my favorite charity. Yeah. Either one of those work, right? But I will not take money for it because it makes it into a job. Whereas for some reason, for me, the sword thing, I'm. I don't mind getting paid for it. Mm. It doesn't. It doesn't take away the sordiness of it for some mm. reason. It has nothing to do with like the intrinsic nature of swords or woodwork. It has everything to do with the intrinsic nature of my brain. Yeah, yeah. So just for me, it, it's it works. Yeah. Um, but, so so yeah. that's where I started dabbling. It's like old and new. So I'll hold up this one but like i did i'm starting to do spaceships send us embroidery. a photograph we'll put it in the show notes yes, <laughs> i have a, it's like serenity in embroidery <laughs> it's this beautiful kind of colored background with the serenity spaceship from firefly on it and i'll be i'll be doing a lot more um i just found out that nasa has like a ton of really cool like specs online um oh, right. i'll send you the link too if you want to see that and i'm just gonna take them all and embroider them because <laughs> um, because <laughs> i Why i not? can't do it with stuff from work because that's proprietary so i'm gonna do it with the nasa stuff and then like and i notice people at work doing it all the time like one of my friends at work has a 3d printer and so he printed for me the this is the uh, winged victory of samothrace from the louvre right um you know, this is like such a cool combination. That's a very cool thing. I yeah. know. Uh, it's just such a cool combination and the sort of intersection of, you know, the 21st century and the 18th century. Well, Wing Victory of Samothrace is way older than that. It's like 300. Um, so I just love that and want to keep doing it as art until I get bored of it. <laughs> yeah. And art for art's sake, right? Exactly. And that has uh, been really good for my brain as well is – just maintaining craft. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's important for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. 
Now, you mentioned money. You know the question is coming. I'm expecting yes. a blisteringly good answer. For okay, somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? Oh no my god! Okay. Yet. So my first response is, I work in aerospace, so put that up to a billion. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, you would not believe what things cost. It's crazy. Anyway. The, I, I um, fly planes. I know. I have some idea what right? things cost. Yeah. Anyway. Um, no, I've thought about this a lot. And what I would like to do is form a grant program. Um, for people who contribute large amounts of their time and resources to HEMA. So events, resources, um, you mentioned Michael Chittister, you know, like, yeah, yeah. People that are doing really amazing scholarship translation work, um, forming events like dance fight, like sword squatch that, um, we are dumping so much time into this stuff. Lonan, you know, anything that's volunteer. I mean, at one point, especially in the early days of Sword Squatch, before we were able to sort of automate a lot of it. Oh my gosh, it was my part-time job <laughs> on yeah. top of a full-time job I already have. Um, and burnout in the community is happening. You know, we've also it's all huge. been through a pandemic and I, you know, I, I experienced a little bit of that as well. So it's, um, it's something that I want to prevent and money prevents burnout. <laughs> like, Oh, I don't know. That's just me saying I want to pay Michael Chittister for his time for the resources that he's donating to the community. Okay. But the problem is once you pay somebody for doing something in money, mm. it becomes a job. Yeah. And if they're doing it for love and you pay them, it doesn't always help. Really? Really not. Ah. Because, well, like I will not accept money for my woodwork. Mm. because it would make it into a job and I don't, I've already got a job and I like mm. my job. I don't have another one. Um, so I think it's, it's a really a good idea, but for some people, yes, absolutely. Totally appropriate to pay them. And people who want to get paid, they absolutely should get paid. But okay. Here's the way to think of it. If you came to my house, like if you were ever in Britain, you would come to my house and, wouldn't you? I hope. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, with cookie dinner and what have you, if you offered to pay for dinner, it would be massively offensive, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah? But that's what's so brilliant about a grant program, right? Is that you have to apply for it. So ah, okay. we're, go we're going to get the folks that are looking at their, let's say, our balance sheet for Sword Squatch and being like, oh my God, like we just barely have enough money to cover the event and we're putting in 15 hours, 20 hours a week as an individual just to do all of this stuff. And I mean, like when you think about gas to and from each other's houses to plan things, um, you know, long meetings at the loft where we're just yeah. working into the night, you know, we, um, the idea that we would be able to say like, hey, with this grant money, we can buy dinner for all of us while we're working, or we can um, cover all of the gas that we're spending to get to and from different venues while we're working on all this. Like, this, these are just super... Like, and also maybe, like, hire an accountant to do the money side of things. Oh, my God, that would be amazing. Um, that would be good, wouldn't it? Exactly. So, and, and then a grant program, you're never going to get the people that 
don't want to get paid or think about the hobby the way you were saying where I don't want to get paid for this. Like if somebody was like, Lee, you can apply for a grant program to get your embroidery funded. I'd be like, I'd be like, well, like I'd really like, you know, more thread, but I don't, I don't want to monetize my hobby. You know, I'm done. Like I'm not going to apply for it. Um, And the people that want the money that need the money that will put the money to use ideally are the ones that are applying. Right. Um, So that's, that's what I would do. And then I, I, you know, grant programs are so fun and I see so much good that they do in the, in the space community, um, mm. with the, the clients we work with on like new shepherd and the, you know, the university system and how they utilize grant funds. It's cool to watch. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a, a lot of, a lot of my guests have suggested some kind of grant program. Oh, they have. And, yeah, yeah, or, or for one thing or another. Are you uh, telling me you don't listen to every show and make notes? I listen to like 10 of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so less than 10%. That's fine. I know where I stand. So, yeah, so, so basically what you're looking at is like a, a grant program for to subsidize volunteers working on cool historical martial arts stuff. Yes. Yep. Okay. I think I'm going to some of that. Right? Like, I mean, I'm just thinking about the amount of personal funds I poured into the first few years of Sword Squatch when we were all in person. It's like you have to feed yourself while you're running an event, coffee, um, you know, like. Does the event not feed you? No, like we 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 feed our like sometimes, but budgets can get really tight, you know, like. So, like, if you're expected to be at the venue, you know, again. 15 hours a day, whereas most people are there for the eight that were running the event, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. It's just like, it's like you end up doing so much running around and then you're like, whoa, like I spent a hundred bucks today. Like, you know, it adds really? up over time. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. yeah that's, that's not trivial. <clears throat> so huh. just little things where I'd be like, oh, well, I'm going to cover this because the event, you know. Or, or maybe the event <laughs> could get a budget or could get a grant for looking after its volunteers. Yeah, yeah, that would be great so too. So, like the event organizers would apply and say, "Look, we're doing this thing, da, 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 and we want this much money to get special T-shirts for our volunteers, and this much money for, you know, like gas money, and yeah, um, we want this much money to get the food we would need to, like, make sure they didn't have to leave the site to get food or whatever. We can just feed them on site." Yeah. And again, like so much has changed. Like I, I now, you know, after the first couple years of eventing sword Squatch is doing awesome. And, you know, although we lost our space, most clubs have, right. So, you know, loan and lost our space. We had to find a new one. Fortunately we did, but it was a struggle and it's smaller and we lost our event space for sword Squatch. So, um, I know a lot of clubs are, you know, in the same place, right? So, yeah. So, with that billion, you could also have grants for like helping clubs get spaces, exactly, or and insurance rent spaces short term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and covering insurance for those events okay. and all that stuff. Yeah. So, actually, like for the for the cost of a nose cone and a tail fin, we could do this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, Priorities. Have yeah. a word with Jeff. And get him on the case. <laughs> Take your sword uh, into work. <laughs> there is a little bit of a sword club at at, at Blue, or at least the the he, the Hema people. Basically, like the Venn diagram again of people who think swords are cool and nerds is a circle. So yeah. 
at a place where there's a lot of nerds, there's a lot of people that think swords are pretty cool. And so there are definitely sword people scattered throughout. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a thing. Maybe you should we should insist on um I don't know, medieval Italian nightly combat training for all astronauts. <laughs> I, mean, I can help you with that. Right? And <laughs> I mean, Seven Eves had an awesome example of like attempting jujitsu in space. Yeah. So like, we're there. Like, let's do it. Um, I don't want to sword anywhere near any equipment. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is that. That's why they need to be trained so they can control their sword. Mm -hmm. They need the training. To control the sword on the spaceship, I think Brilliant. we've nailed it. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> well, uh, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah. It's to you. Oh, no, thank you. This is crazy. And now I guess I have to go back to training because I just talked about it for two hours. <laughs> yes, you do. That's part of the reason I agreed to do this. I was like, well, now if I say it, I have to. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lee. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you will find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Andrew Newton about horseback archery, kids' classes, how to teach children, and various other things associated with running the Annapolis Valley Historical Fencing Club, which he founded. So, you don't want to miss that, so subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from, and while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Most importantly, though, if you have enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends. It makes all the difference. There is nothing that beats a personal recommendation. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you.